So let's go back to that story. We have been reading through this past number of weeks in the the book of Exodus. Today we come to another very well-known chapter. It's chapter 12 in, in Exodus, page 68. Of course, all these stories and all these events are, are very familiar to us and uh, in some ways can, can go over, over our heads. We're not going to read the, the entire chapter, but this would be the, the last of the, the plagues, uh, as it were, the most significant out of, of all of them, where, where God was demonstrating his power uh, in the ultimate deliverance of the, the people of, of Israel out of Egypt. So Exodus chapter 12, and it's the account of the Passover and the angel of death. Exodus chapter 12, begin to read at verse 1, and let's hear God's word. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor. Having taken into account the number of people there are, you are determined to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. They are to take some of the blood and to put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs that same night. They are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some of it is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord." The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. The next number of verses up to verse 20 are about the institution then of of another ordinance, the the festival of unleavened bread, but we'll skip just that bit out, even though it's, it's reinforcing all that's been happening, but skipping down to verse 21. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top on on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. 
When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe, and he will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you what does this ceremony mean to you, then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. And we end at verse 30 and we pray that the Lord would add his blessing upon his truth. Amen. I don't know if anyone here has been to visit the memorial in Jerusalem, Yad Vashem, which is dedicated to the memory of all those who lost their lives uh, in the Nazi persecution of the, before the, the Second World War and, and during the Second World War. If you haven't, allow me to try and describe a little bit of that. As you enter into that museum stroke memorial, uh, there's a bit of a winding path and it's entirely black, dark. And it's only punctuated by little tiny dots of light in the walls and in the, the ceiling. And as you follow through in the near total blackness, you then come across large sheets of glass and it's apparent that there is writing on those large sheets of glass as the light is further reflected through them. And as you get a bit closer to these large sheets of glass, it's apparent that it's the names of every child who, per who died during that persecution. As you go through that memorial, what is uppermost in your mind is surely the the tragedy, the enormity of the pain and the suffering of uh, the, the, the people of Israel. It's a memorable sharing of their experience of what they have gone through and where they've come to this point. And, and even though those events are, are only but a mere 70 odd, 80 years away, and the enormity of it all is so great, Unless you have been personally affected by it, you can come away from that and really not give it a second thought. And in some ways, it's even more so for what we read in the account of Exodus chapter 12, isn't it? That there was huge suffering and there was huge pain. It was a tragedy that was upon another race, the, the, the Egyptians. And... 4,000 years ago, these details are obscure, and yet the suffering and pain is as clear, and it's definite, and that's what we see in this passage. And God wants us 
to see this passage and to, and to see a bit of that pain and the, and the tragedy of it. And God, through his word, wants us maybe to see this today, I think, in, in terms of two principal pictures. I'm going to try and use these two images which, with which we are meant to see and understand the teaching of this passage. And so the, the first thing that, we're, that, that we see in, the, in this passage and what we're meant to see is, is that this is ultimately a picture of the judgment of God. So as we, as we read uh, verse 29, if you read with me in Exodus 12 and, and verse 29, and this is uppermost surely in, in all of this, it says, at midnight the Lord, and you're meant to say that it's the Lord has done this, that the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was a loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. And let's try and imagine today this awful, terrible, tragic scene there is not a house in Egypt that has been unaffected by what has happened here. And I want you to try and imagine also the noise that happened, of course, at midnight when it says that the angel of death went over the land. Uh, down at the end of, of, of this passage, at verse, uh, verse 30, it talks there about the loud wailing in, in Egypt. Uh, many of us, in, in, maybe in the news, you've, when you've seen some of the, the deaths of someone in the Middle East because of some uh, terrorist incident or something like that, and, and you've got the, the next day, you've got the funeral cortege, and what always comes across very, very prominently in that is just the noise of a, a Near Eastern funeral cortege. Remember that high-pitched wailing that principally the ladies... Uh, carry out as they make this, this noise, but amplify that because this is affecting every home in Egypt, this sense of the loud noise. There's something eerie about it. There's something ghostly about it. And surely the sense that the whole land has been overwhelmed. And as we read this in this passage, and whilst last week when we were thinking about the, the nine acts of God, that the, the plagues that, that God has sent upon the land. And there's a sense that these, of course, were acts very clearly. God had done these incredible miracles and that God brought these about and that God was, was very definitely in the midst of that. But still this one, this 10th one, is the act of God. You see that uh, very clearly in verse 29. It says that, that the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. You're, you're meant to, to see that. Uh, it's blunt and it's shocking. And that's what you're meant to. You're, you're meant to sort of be, be shaken out of your, your, your casual awareness just because it's the Lord has brought about this devastation. But also I want you to look back to verse 11 because verse 11 is now saying what's been happening in the land of Goshen. And in the land of Goshen, that's where the Israelites live. And he's been telling the people that they're to be observing the first Passover. And he says, this is how you are to eat it. 
with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. And literally what that means is eat it in fear. So even they have got this sense of fear and tragic circumstances and an awareness of what's happening. But, but what is happening is that they're to know that as soon as this is over, they are to get ready to go because God is going to deliver his people. But as the people of Israel, even they have been eating this, there is a sense of awe around them. There is a sense that all is not well because God has now come in judgment. And if we're going to deal with God, if we're going to deal with God as he really is, then we have to have a sense that God is a God who cannot overlook wrong, but that God is a judge. And we might prefer that we have an image of God in our minds, which is like a saintly old sweet grandfather who's up in the clouds and he bestows gifts and he just throws these things upon us. And we might prefer to have this cuddly image. And that is your privilege if you want to think that, that, that you can do that. But it's your imagination because to have a whole rounded picture of who God is, you have to have an understanding that God cannot overlook all that is wrong in the world. And even Jesus himself spoke about judgment. If I was to turn, for instance, to Matthew chapter 13, and if I read verse 40, and these are the words of Jesus. Matthew 13, verse 40, and he's explaining one of his, uh, his parables. It's the parable of the weeds. He says, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil and they will throw them into the blazing fire and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, even as we read that, I'm not suggesting that God is vindictive. I'm not saying that God has lost his temper or that God acts irrationally because after all, they, God has given these people not one warning, but nine warnings up to this point that if you ignore what God is saying, uh, he will come in judgment. And so on this 10th occasion, he comes in judgment to those who refuse to listen. And that does make us think, doesn't it? Because God speaks to us and God challenges us and God may warn us, but still we may do nothing. And we can harden our hearts and we can refuse to listen and we can go our own way and we can harden our hearts to the point and to the extent that we can find ourselves unable to hear and respond to God's word again. And that is the reality of God 4,000 years ago and God is unchanged. And so that's the first picture that we remember, that God is a God of judgment. But thankfully, that's not the whole thing. And the second one is that we also have a picture of sacrifice here in this story because there was, of course, a means of escape and the means of escape from the angel of death who would bring the judgment. And what God had told the people to do is that they were to get a lamb and they were to sacrifice the lamb, and they were to kill the lamb, one per household. And they were to drain the blood from the dead lamb, drain it into a bowl. They were to get a branch of hyssop, and they were to dip it in the bowl. And then they were to spread that blood on the doorposts and over the top of, of, of the door frame. 
And you can well imagine that the people who did that, because this is the first time that they were told to do it, they would not have had a clue what they were doing. It was as strange to them as it might be to anyone today. What is the purpose and the point of doing this except that this is what God had told them to do? And we now today can understand what was going on because we've got the Bible to explain it. And as we look back, we can see that there is a direct connection between the death of the Lamb and the salvation that God was going to bring for those who were in that house. And as we read verse 13 of this passage, it is the blood that makes the difference. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood... I will pass over you and no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. I want you to know that the blood didn't make the people inside the house super saints. It didn't really change the people who were inside the homes. And that's emphasized because if you look down towards the end of verse 22, it says that if you leave the house, you're in danger. Though these people were told, don't step out until the morning. And it was the refuge that was provided to them was because the blood was painted over the doorpost. And it was the blood that literally stood between them and the anger of God because of sin. In verse 23, when the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the tops and the sides of the doorframe and will pass over the doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. And so the Israelites in this home would have had this very clear understanding that it was the blood of the lamb that was saving them. And inside every Egyptian house, there was a dead son. And inside every Israelite house, there was a dead lamb. And the connection was clear. It was the blood of the lamb that had taken away the punishment. And all that we have been understanding about that, in many ways, is summed up by two very important and significant theological terms. I don't often draw to your attention theological terms, but today I think it's important to do that. And the two theological terms I'm going to bring to your attention today are propitiation and substitution. And what those words are pointing us to is that when we see the word propitiation, that literally means the turning back of God's anger. And that is what was happening in this picture is that because of the sacrifice that had been made, God's anger was turned back and it didn't come into their household. But also there is an understanding that it was because that someone had been substituted. The lamb had been placed to take the punishment. He died in your place and he is your substitute. And all of this was given new significance in this memorial meal that they were told to do. They were to do this for all time as an ordinance, remembering what God had done for them. And even Jesus himself took this Passover meal on the day before he died on the cross. He was with his disciples in the upper room and he was sharing the Passover meal. And on that time, he was telling them, all these years you've been thinking about this lamb who died. Well, I'm telling you now, I am the lamb of God. And he took 
the bread and he says, this is my body. He took the wine and he says, this is my blood which is shed for you. And so this image is so significant for us and it was the blood of the lamb which was shed to forgive the sins of the world. And so even for the Israelites back here, they understood the difference. The disciples understood the difference for them. It's not even simply that it was a dead lamb and that they're able to eat a dead lamb, but it was the fact that Jesus' body was given for them. So this is our ultimate reminder of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And God has revealed his love for us in that he gave Jesus. Paul describes Christ as our Passover meal or our Passover sacrifice. Peter says you have been redeemed because the price has been paid for you. And even as, maybe as, as an aside, the, the events and the circumstances of the journey out of, of Egypt there's a little insight given in Psalm 105, which describes the manner of their escape from Egypt, which I think is really important to know because these people who were in that eerie, unusual circumstance, but we have an insight into the manner in which the Israelites actually left Egypt. In the spite of all that horror of those moments and in the, the noise of hearing the wailing of the Egyptian people. But think about that from the perspective now of the Israelites because, because the Israelites, and we're told in the story that the Egyptians presented them with gold and with silver and they went out with joy. But Psalm 105 and verse 37 says, he brought out Israel laden with silver and gold and from among their tribes, no one faltered. We've got this sense that there was such an exhilaration and there was such a presence of God amongst his people that God's people were literally lifted up and they went out with excitement. Reading on into verse 38 of that psalm, Egypt was glad when they left because the dread of Israel had fallen on them. He, he spread out a cloud as a, a covering and a fire to give them light at night. And down in verse 43, he brought out all his people with rejoicing, his chosen ones with shouts of joy. So there is this sense with the Israelites, what they've finally now experienced is the joy and the wonder of salvation. From their perspective, they had left the, 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 the chains of bondage behind. These people now know that God has done this, that God has, has enacted his vengeance upon the people of Israel or upon the people of Egypt, and God's people are now free and they are leaving with the assurance of God's presence and that we might talk about over oh, a thousand tongues to sing but literally we understand now of course the Israelites leaving there's two million of them and they're praising God and they're going out with an excitement and a joy because they know what God has done for them and then being specific for you today right now knowing that these Israelites back then, this was their real first taste of God doing something miraculous in their lives where they knew that God was their deliverer. 
What about you? Can you remember maybe even that first time where you understood what Jesus Christ did for you? When you understood that his sacrifice on the cross was sufficient for your sin, not simply to know about it, but to know in your heart of hearts that this is what Jesus has done for me. And so even though you knew the enormity of your sin and the shame of that and the guilt of that, that Jesus literally paid it all for you. And so that you knew on that occasion that now I'm going to give my life to Jesus because I know he's done this for me. And the joy and the wonder and the excitement of that. Can you remember that? Was it hard? Was it hard to surrender your life to Jesus? Well, there's a sense that it's, you're unsure, but because you are so definite about what Jesus has done for you, you know that you must and you need to do that because literally you've left the chains of bondage to sin behind and you're going with Jesus. And what I want everyone in this place to know today is that you will be, your life is summarized under one of these two pictures. Because right now, as you listen to me, you will either find that your life can be described as being under the judgment of God or it is described as being summarized by being under the sacrifice of what God has done for you. And the question, of course, that you need to ask is which one is you? Because if you are under the, the, the judgment of God, well, then I would encourage you the thing that you need to do and that you can't put off is that you need to say, I need Jesus into my life. Now, as you think about those previous nine signs of God, those plagues that God sent upon the, the people of, of Egypt and Israel to an extent, is actually the, the, even the Israelites didn't need to do anything because God was just doing it and he was demonstrating his power. And he was doing it all to the Egyptians, but in the land of Goshen, it was different. This last one is different because this is covering everywhere. It was over Egypt and it was over Goshen. And the difference for this one is that the people of Israel couldn't just sit back and watch it, but they had to take the blood of the lamb that was shed and they had to put it over their doorposts. And if they didn't actually take that, if they didn't actually take that sacrifice and they didn't show to God that they had done that, well, then they would be under the judgment of God just like the, just like the Egyptians. So we need to take what God is saying seriously. But I will assume, of course, as we're gathered in church that most of us know that our lives are summarized by being under the sacrifice of what Jesus has done for us. We can remember what God has done. We can look forward to what Jesus will do in our lives. But if you, as your life is summarized by the sacrifice of Jesus and what Jesus has done for your sin and that he has removed your sin and the shame and the guilt is gone and we have already been singing about that today, I want to ask you the question, does it really make a difference in your life so that you are changed. You know, the nation of Israel were told to remember what God has done. And in the Bible, when you're told about remembering something, you're told to remember so that you are a changed person. 
many of us for many years have been going through school and going through university and we learn stuff. In work, you learn stuff and you learn facts and you learn figures and you begin to do things with them and you can maybe come out with qualifications and you can maybe get a, a good enough degree and for years, I mean, I, I, I once upon a time used to know lots of stuff about chemistry. I don't know anything about that now. But what I can say is that it never changed my life even though I knew all this stuff and I could write it down. Might have got me a degree and got me a couple of letters after my name, but it never changed my life. But remembering what Jesus Christ has done for us is supposed to change your life. You remember for a purpose so that God changes your life. And the question that you must answer as you are journeying towards Jesus, as you are part of this community of what God has done, is that your life should be changed. And again, for the nation of Israel, I think you will have overlooked something that it says in verse 2 of Exodus chapter 12. This was so significant. This was such a significant day, such a significant event. And it, everything was changed so much that even their calendar was changed. This month is to be for you the first month even their very calendar was changed. This was so significant. This was so different. And they were meant to remember this. When I think about God changing the calendar for them so that this became the new start of their year, it was a reminder that they were to put God first. Above everything else, put God first. And that's the challenge, I think, for all of us. Is Jesus really first in our lives? Is it the case? Is it so that it's deeply true in our lives? We may say that Jesus is first. We may know lots of things, but is Jesus functionally first in your life so that the reality of what Jesus has done, that it impacts your life? What is your response to the understanding of what God has done for you in Jesus? that following Jesus must make a difference. Listening to the promptings of the Holy Spirit in your life so that you know that God wants me to do this. What is it that needs to change in our lives as we make God first? Let's just pause as we pray. Lord Jesus, yes, we want to thank you for this amazing sacrifice. We may be tempted as we journey through life to take up our burdens, to carry our shame and guilt because we feel we need to do something ourselves rather than just acknowledging you have paid it all. Our natural reaction is to hold on to these things. But Lord, help us to see the real significance of Jesus paying it all. And as we leave this place today, 
to do so with the understanding that it impacts who I am and what I do, that my life can't be the same. And then to reflect, what does that actually mean for me? What does it mean tomorrow or next year? Lord, we want you to be the center of who we are. We want to honor you. We want to love you. We want to see Jesus. Amen.